0: I'm a brand podcaster in the accounting, finance, and fintech space. Our flagship show, Accounting Influencers, is now one of the world's leading podcasts in this genre. And there's a number of spin-off shows over the years. This particular show is now focusing on talent, which, let's face it, is one of the biggest challenges for the accounting world at the moment. And the format stays the same. I interview the experts, the influencers, and the leaders in many different aspects of culture, talent, Employer brand succession, talent attraction, retention, soft skills, accounting credentials, qualifications, leadership, mental well-being, the brand of the profession, employee value propositions, employee engagement, increasing capacity and headcount in accounting firms, career development, and the usual HR, Atlen and Development, DEI, the great resignation, a ton of other talent-related issues in accounting. And whether you're hiring or being hired, happy where you are or considering a move, leading or following, employed or self-employed, totally skilled up and super employable or needing to refresh your skills, sharpen your personal brand, this is the perfect podcast for you accounting, finance and tech professionals to stay competitive, relevant and informed about all things talent in accounting. So let's get moving with today's show.
1: Influencers
0: Broadcast Network presents Influencers in Accounting. On behalf of the Accounting Influencers Podcast Network, I'm Rob Brown with a part two interview with the legend that is Ron Baker. Hello, Ron.
1: Hi, Rob. Nice to be back.
0: It's wonderful to have you back with us, Ron, in part one. Let's just summarize for our listeners who haven't heard that show the challenges that we pose to the accounting profession and how we propose going about solving it. So just put that into a couple of minutes summary for us, if you would.
1: Well, we talked about, I think, the biggest challenge with the accounting profession, and I'm talking at a very macro scale, is relevancy. Uh, We need to restore relevancy. And I, I think it's hard to do that when we're servicing so many customers on a fee for service treadmill. So I think we need to get back to why we entered the profession in the first place, which is to help people, whether those people are individuals or whether those people are in a business or both. Uh, That's why most of us join the profession. And I think we're falling down in, in in, in that purpose. I really do because we've got too many customers. Relationships don't scale. And I know it freaks people out when I say that because we all want a scalable business. I'm not saying a business can't scale. I'm saying relationships are hard to scale you know it's hard to know what what's a Dunbar number you know more than 50 or 75 people but if you think about your close circle of friends i mean it's it's going to probably be fewer than 10 that you really know at a very very deep level well it's the same with customers at some point you you should only have a maximum number of customers because you want to provide them guidance to help them achieve their dreams and their their goals you know what we call transformation so we talked a lot about guiding transformations We talked about firms having to plus their offering that uncommon services are the only thing that command uncommon prices if you go to the market with the same tech stack the same services the same cast department that everybody else has that's a common offering i got news for you you're going to command a a common price you've got to differentiate yourself and and i think that comes in from you know baking innovation into your business model plussing your offering and providing coverage and convenience and a frictionless customer experience to your customers. Um, And my model for all this, of course, is the concierge doctors and the direct primary care physicians. Now, I know this is a U.S.-centric point, but they have proven the model. Uh, A a typical doctor in the United States, and I'm not sure how it works in the U.K., Rob, but typical general physician in the U.S., has a panel of patients of about 3,200, which is why you get to spend five minutes with them <laughs> when you're in the, and you fill out a bunch of paperwork every time and all that. Um, the concierge doctors and DPC doctors have a panel of patients that maxes out somewhere between 500 and 600. They can spend more time with you and they can, keep, they can keep you healthy. This is why I like the analogy with the medical profession. Doctors are there to keep us physically healthy, not just to cure us when, we sit, when we're sick and present with some issue, but to keep us healthy. And in order to do that, they need to spend more time with you and get to know you and family history and all of that. But what are CPAs there for? Well, keep people financially healthy. So it's the same thing. We're both in the same business. We just are dealing with this different aspects of people's wealth, their health. We
0: talked about the continuum from client service through to client experience through then to client transformation. And at the fulcrum of this, the hub of this is the accounting profession. And so many people call it an accounting industry, but the profession, the accountants, the CPAs themselves, they want to be seen like legal professionals or medical or healthcare professionals because they've earned the stripes, they've got the degrees, they've got the qualifications. And there's a wonderful quote in your book, Time's Up. We talked a bit about this in the last podcast we did with you, we commend it again to our listeners on the move to the subscription model and the fight for relevance for accounting firms. This quote by Michael Hammer says, a professional is someone who is responsible for achieving a result rather than performing a task. Just explain that to us and how that pertains to the accounting profession, Ron. Yeah,
1: I think this is an absolutely profound definition. You know, a profession I, I think it derives from the Latin professio or something, but it, it means that you, you profess something, you stand for something as a profession and what all professionals are responsible for doing is creating a result. It's not about the products and services we sell. It's about the result. So if you think about a plastic surgeon, you know, what's the result of a plastic surgeon? It isn't certainly to put you under the, the knife for four hours. It's to enhance something about your body. Um, all all professionals are responsible for a result, and yet when you look at our business model, it treats us more like day laborers. You know, clean my gutters, walk my dog, mow my lawn. You know, and everything that we're, we're going to charge for every little service that we do. Um, we need to stop this. It's customer abuse. We're there to provide a result, and to me, that means a transformation. If we can guide those transformations that's that's the highest point on the value curve you're ever gonna climb.
0: And you give some examples in your book when you talk about the revenue model of uh, companies like Fender and, and Sinsam and MD squared. Talk to us a little bit about how they address the question, what are you asking your customers to pay for?
1: Yeah, you know, Joe Pine and the Experience Economy said, you are what you charge for. A business is defined by what it puts a price on. Well. Another author from Harvard, Marco Bertini, uh, and we interviewed him on our show, he wrote a book called The Ends Game, and where he talked about the the revenue model question, what are you asking your customers to pay for? Not how much are you asking them to pay? That's the pricing question. This is the revenue model question, and I think it's absolutely profound. So when you think about a company like Fender, which is, I think, the largest guitar manufacturer in the world, um, the CEO said when we sell a guitar to somebody, they're usually very excited, they're going to take lessons, they're, you know, they're all passionate about it. And 95% of them quit within six months. He says the guitar goes in the closet goes under the bed, he said worse, they'll gift it to somebody and we'll lose another sale. So I think in 2016, they started Fender Play, which is a digital library, 1000s and 1000s of videos to help people play the guitar from beginner to intermediate, all the way to advanced, wherever you wanted to go. And during COVID, when we were all locked inside, they gave a free three-month trial. Then the first few, I think the first week, they had a million new subscribers. And in 2020, 2021, Fender sold more cigars, uh, uh, guitars than they ever had in their corporate history. And the CEO said, we're not selling, we're not selling uh, you know videos on how to play the guitar. We're not even selling guitars. We're selling musicianship at the level, at the level that you wanna play that that's a far cry from saying we're going to track the number of skus we sell no you're selling musicianship
0: well it's a far cry from selling an audit isn't it ron for sure
1: it, for absolutely and sin sam is another favorite example of mine i just this outfit's amazing i think it's uh scandinavia's largest um optical uh clinic you know they have they have all sorts of uh clinics all over or Uh, Brick and mortar stores. And of course, it's all about, you know, your eye exam and your glasses or your contacts. And when they launched, they launched as a subscription. I want to say it's 150 bucks a month. I haven't looked at it recently, but it's something like that. And all the experts in the business, just like Walt Disney was told when he was going to open Disneyland, all the experts. This will never work. Nobody's going to subscribe. to Why the heck would anybody subscribe to eyeglasses (laughs) and the SimSan founders and they were all young people. And of course, that's a very staid, you know, sclerotic industry. um, Eyewear, you know, it's been around a long time, so it's pretty mature. You know, there's innovation, but it's not in the delivery to the to the end user. And they said, we're not asking people to subscribe to their eye exam and their glasses and their lenses. We're asking them to subscribe for perfect eyesight. Um, And when you think of it that way, it's like, if you need multiple eye exams, because you got something going on, it's covered. It's covered. They're not going to nickel and dime you every time you walk into the store. If your prescription changes, they'll upgrade all your lenses, sunglasses, contacts, whatever. It's all inclusive. It's coverage. It's like, it's like an insurance policy, but it's insurance with an E. In order to get you to that perfect eyesight, they're insuring that journey. You're going to be covered. Don't worry about it. We're not going to nickel and dime you every time you show up for something.
0: How does it relate to the healthcare industry with the example you gave earlier? Because in the book, you talk about Dr. Paul, a founder, don't you? And and he really changed things with Plum Health.
1: He did. He's, a, he's um, what really put the healthcare revolution on the map was MD squared, which is the largest um, general practice, general physician practice in the United States. And MD squared was started by a guy named Howard Moran, who was the team doctor for the NBA team, the Seattle Sonics. And he said, when one of my players got hurt, I could run out to the court, you know, inject them with something or do whatever, get them back in the game, right? As fast as possible. And he said, why can't I do that with my patients? He said, because I have Thirty-four hundred patients, and I can't spend enough time. Is I knew everything about my players. I knew their family history. I knew what drugs they were taking. I knew everything about them. But I don't know that same level of detail because I have too many patients. So he started MD Squared, and get this, Rob. He limited each doctor to fifty families. That's it, maximum. Once they they cap out, they hire another doctor, or you know, you go on a waiting list. Now their price, and this is in. 1996. Their price was $32,000 to cover a married couple per year. And it was like five grand a kid for a year. And now, of course, they're obviously going after CEOs and the top 10%, you know, people that have more money than time, because they said, we're going to create a, a, a great experience. When you come into our offices, there's no waiting room. We'll lock the door behind you. If you need to make phone calls, you can do whatever you want. If you need a specialist, we'll walk you over to the specialist and sit down through that consult. They just up the game dramatically. Then, in about two thousand nine five, somewhere in there, uh, the direct primary care docs come along, like Dr. Paul. They're not going after the top ten percent. They're going after the middle class and even below. So their price point is lower. They have a different strategy, different positioning. I, I think of it as like a you know Ritz Carlton, Four Seasons, versus say a Marriott Courtyard, and Dr. Paul is charging about a hundred bucks a month now that well, that's the price of a, a cell phone and you get access to dr paul you're subscribing to his practice which means you can text him he'll respond instantly practically you can email him you can get same day appointments he'll come to your house your office um and he'll know everything about you the average visit is about an hour and a half not five minutes it's about an hour and a half um these doctors are revolutionizing the, the healthcare industry.
0: And that's the point, Ron. He knows you. There's some intimacy about that, isn't there?
1: And MD Squared, when it started, and by the way, Rob, this is a great story. I can't believe this is such serendipity. I met a gal at the Scaling New Heights conference this past June oh, yeah, Joe Woodard. Cool. Yeah, yeah, Joe Woodard. And she came up to me. She goes, you were talking about MD Squared. I, she goes, I couldn't believe it. She goes, I was their bookkeeper. I opened up, I, I did their chart of accounts. I opened up every office. I worked intimately with their CFO. And and what, what's amazing about that is she said, we would get these checks from customers and it would be for like, you know, probably three grand, right? The monthly subscription price, whatever it was. And she, she would ask the CFO, where do I code this? What did we do for this patient? And the CFO kept telling her, we don't, we do whatever the patient needs. Just code it to revenue. This is why Gap Gap always wants to match something, (laughs) the cost and the revenue. You can't do that in subscription because you're kind of covering anything that the practice is capable of doing. You're covered. There is no fee for service. You're not coding anything. And she goes, it blew my mind. She goes, I couldn't, I, and and it blew mine too, Rob. And I have to say when I wrote pricing on purpose in 2008, I believe um, I wrote about MD squared because it was, Um, You know, relatively new at that point, and even I was 12 or 10 years behind the curve. But I called it retainer based medicine. I didn't even have the adequate vocabulary to describe its business model. No, it's not retainer based, it's subscription based. Part of what you're a big part of what you're paying for is just knowing that doctors there when you need them, that convenience, that peace of mind. Accountants can do the same thing. Well, can
0: they? Because accountants listening will be challenged by this message because they'll want to apportion everything to a code they're dealing black and whites and binary and everything must fit and checks and balances and everything's accounted for and in a way that's their strength but they're bound then to that code aren't they so talk to us a little bit about kpis and how they can start to change their thinking on what's really important these key performance indicators
1: yeah one of the things i love to do when i when i talk about this topic to a group of accountants is the very first slide I put up is the traditional income statement and then a subscription business model income statement. Because once an accountant sees the income statement, they get an idea for how the business works. And the amazing thing about the income statement for a subscription business is it starts with beginning annual recurring revenue or monthly, depending on the period. And then it backs out churn. So the number of customers that you lost and the revenue that they accounted for, that's subtracted out. And then it codes recurring expenses like labor, rent, technology, you know, all of that. And that, but then it breaks out sales and marketing. And the reason it does all this is because, of course, the KPIs are completely different. And and then it, it it shows the the new ARR for the period, and then it ends with the ending ARR. So the income statement is forward directed, and if it's a product company, even the cost of goods sold are forward directed. And this is this is what violates every managerial accounting principle in the world, but from, this is why so many subscription business models do pro forma statements because they, they say, look, here's the gap statements from the auditors, but they're crap. Here's how we think the business is doing. And then they, they lay out an income statement like, like the one I show. And the reason they do that is because one of the big metrics to analyze a subscription business is the cost of customer acquisition. And, uh, you know, versus customer lifetime value. So when an outfit like Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm, wants to evaluate and value a a subscription-based business, they have a whole list of metrics that they use. And of course, monthly recurring revenue, churn rate, all of that. But the big one that I list is the uh, cost of goods sold, or I'm sorry, customer lifetime value should be greater than three times the cost of acquisition. And in the best subscription business, it's eight to one. what's so cool about subscription is the KPIs have been all developed. Andreessen Horowitz has two reports that are available online to anybody. And you can see the KPIs that they look at to evaluate businesses and whether or not they should invest them and invest in them and all that. Um, And they're amazing because there's no room for hourly rate realization, this is a portfolio, we're growing customer lifetime value. So a subscription business, unlike a fee for service business, it is creating lifetime annuities that are going to be greater than the cost to acquire. That's really what it is. So you could invest all your operating profit back into the business to grow that annual recurring revenue. And this was what Salesforce did, because of course, they were one of the early adopters of this model. And they they took all their operating in, income and, and put it into sales and marketing so they could grow that ARR. As long as the bucket's not leaking, you're going to have a very incredible business. This is why, by the way, you probably read about this, Adobe just bought this company Figma and I think what was their revenue? $400 million. The top line, they had annual recurring revenue of $400 million. Adobe paid $20 billion, billion, with a B, dollars for it. Multiple of 50 Multiple of 50. That's the difference between recurring revenue and reoccurring revenue that accountants have. Yeah, we have reoccurring revenue, but you know what? It's sporadic. It's not, we don't have metrics around it to document it very well. It's kind of like a rash. You you kind of never know if it's going to come back, especially some of the one-offs that we do. Uh, But if you have a business that has recurring revenue, it's more predictable. The cash flow is more predictable. The churn rate's more predictable. And investors and other buyers are going to pay a premium for it. We're, you know uh, John Warlow from Canada, who wrote the book The Automatic Customer, which is one of the four books that we recommend on subscription. Uh, he he wrote another book called Built to Sell. So he he's heavily involved in helping owners prepare their businesses to sell. And he says we are seeing multiples for professional based subscription businesses from anywhere from six to twenty.
0: It's a game changer. So these key predictive indicators or performance indicators define success the same way the customer defines success. So we can put these in place for our firms. What might be some healthy predictive indicators of say MD squared and compare that to an accounting firm's KPIs, Ron?
1: Yeah, key performance indicators. And and, and I should mention that the ARR and the churn and the even even to some extent the customer lifetime value, which is the biggie, those are all financial indicators. You can pull those or model those at least from the accounting data. So by definition, any financial ratio that comes off an accounting report is by definition a lagging indicator. Leading indicators are not found on the the financial statements. They have to be posited. They have to define the uh, success of the firm the same way the customer does. So you have to ask yourself, what does your customer care about? Well, if you're an airline, they care about on time arrival and don't lose my luggage, right? If you're Dr. Paul or a concierge doctor, they're going to you're going to want to track things like how many er visits did we you know avoid did we help our our patients that have weight loss goals attain those goals did we help reduce co you know amongst our patients and, and of course they have to look at the mortality rates just a fact of life in their business they uh, part of their churn is customers passing away um and and they have goals like that because that's how we define the success of our doctor are they getting me healthy? And so those are some of the KPIs that Dr. Paul uses in his uh, DPC practice. And we can do things like, uh, well, I know some firms use net promoter score. I think turnaround time is a really interesting, you know, are we getting the work back to our customers when we promise them, just like FedEx tracks on time arrival and Geez, even if you order a Domino's pizza now, you'll see online where they are. I mean, through through the whole pro- Why can't we do this in accounting firms? Seriously, why can't, why can't we open up that level of transparency? Because the file will be sitting in the you know the partner's desk or his credenza for.
0: Well, surely there's more data in an accounting firm than pretty much anywhere else, Ron.
1: I, I, exactly. Um, so, I, I the other KPI I like is turnaround time, net promoter score. If it works for you. I also became kind of enamored with another one that was in a Harvard Business Review article called Customer Effort Score, and I'll, I'll try and boil this down to its essence. But if we're going to track time, Rob, in the accounting profession, because we fetishize time, we have time sheets and six-minute increments, and, and I still can't believe how many firms use that, even firms that value price. Um, if we're going to do, if we're going to track time, we should track time in two ways: how much time did we save our customer, and how much time do we spend? with our customers. That's what we should be tracking. Because to me, that's a leading indicator of are we guiding transformations? Are we really helping them? Are we nurturing and strengthening that relationship? Because with a relationship, only two things can happen. It's either growing weaker or it's getting stronger. Take your pick. There's nothing really in between those two things. So if you're in a frenetic-based firm that is going from one project to another, one service to another, trying to feed the funnel constantly, you know, because you have leakage, um, how how much can you devote to the relationship? You
0: quote something in the book called HSDs as a firm wide KPI. Just explain that one to us,
1: Boy, this is, you're going to love this. This is really touchy feely, but it's been proven uh, by several uh, professional firms. We have law firms that use this, and uh, we have some consulting firms that use it, and some CPA firms that use it, but it stands for high satisfaction days. It's actually a trademark term from a group, a consulting group out, up up in Napa here in my backyard. And um, it, it basically is when one of your team members has a day where they just pump their fists and say, yes, this is this is why I'm alive. This is why I joined this profession. This is, I was born to do this. this just and It could be a customer breakthrough. It could be, you know, a customer gave them a thank you note or a gift for something they did. Um, and this firm posts them now, of course, on social media, back when they developed this, they had little widgets and the person who, you know, had an HSD would just, you know, click on this little widget, like a little post-it note, fill out what happened, you know, got a a beautiful, you know, I don't know, bouquet of roses from a customer or whatever. And everybody's laptop would be pinged. And the (laughs) owner said, the owner said, it's, it's a barometer of the morale in my firm. So the more HSDs I see, the happier my team are, the happier the team is, hopefully the happier the customers are. He said, but second, it shows me that we're living our purpose. We're walking our talk. We're not just talking about it in in mission statements and our why statements and all. We're living it because most HSDs are customer driven. And he said, third, the more HSDs I see in a month, the higher my next quarter's profits are. That's an interesting link. (laughs) It's a very soft you know, touchy feely, California metric, but he linked it to financial results and he still tracks it and it works for him. So I love that one.
0: And I love the distinction in KPIs between key performance indicators and key predictive indicators. And the favorite one I like in your book is FLV in, in putting a spin on lifetime value.
1: Yes. The, uh, you know, we talk about customer lifetime value and that's a big metric. And and this is kind of going back to actually the '90s. Fred Reichel, the developer of MPS Score, he did a lot of work on loyalty economics. Wrote several books on it, and they're still as relevant today as they've ever been. I mean, customer loyalty is a, is an enormous driver of profit because we already know the customer. We've climbed down the learning curve. They're familiar with us. They're less they're less price sensitive about our pricing, uh, and all those reasons why a you know an existing customer is. You know, 11 times more valuable than than a, um, a new one because we have to chase them and spend money to get them and RFPs, dog and pony shows, all of that. So, but the FLV asks a different question: What is the firm's lifetime value to the customer? Now, this is a question that Apple and Intel and other companies are masters at because the way they the way they uh, manifest this is. Intel said, and this was Andy Grove, this goes back to Andy Grove days. He said, we want Intel's revenue 100% to come from products that didn't exist three years ago. Now, I'm not suggesting accountants could do that. I don't think they could. But Apple wants 50% of their revenue from products that didn't exist three years ago. Um, That's an innovation curve that, that forces you to think about how can we add more value to our customers? So maybe we add You know different offerings different services maybe we do retirement planning as our as our client base ages whatever it is dr paul is constantly adding uh procedures and 23andme analysis you know dna testing all of that type of thing blood work some of these docs are adding pharmacies you know to their offering and when they do this rob they don't increase the price they not at least at least not directly there's no correlation between innovation and the pricing those things have been separated. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have price increases. Of course they do, just like Netflix and Amazon Prime does, but it's separated from the day-to-day activity. Ron, this is
0: great stuff. The accounts that's listening, half of them are going to be saying, yeah, we want that in our firm, but the leadership won't go for it. or I don't have a voice to drive that kind of change or even get them thinking about it. What would you say to them? <laughs>
1: Go out and start your own firm. Yeah, get out. <laughs> yeah, get out. Because, you know, it, it, the, the big misunderstanding of our time is, is the idea that, you know, facts and logic are going to work with people that aren't motivated to change. This business model is going to be for the rebels. It's going to be for the pioneers. Just like the DP, just like if you listen to Dr. Paul and we've interviewed the guy four times. I love him. He, he's, he operates in Detroit. I wish he could be my doctor. I love the guy. You can just tell he's got this incredible bedside manner. You can tell he cares deeply about his patients and creating, um, you know, safe, caring, nurturing uh, customer experience for them it's just amazing how they have upped the game from the you know sitting in a waiting room with the clipboard filling out the same you know 50 pages of questions they don't do that to their patients they're you're a member you membership you know like american express used to say membership has its privileges and uh, you know i just think that's the model that we need to go to because that this is why we got into this profession this has
0: been terrific thank you so much for sharing time's up Uh, it's a groundbreaking book it's saying a lot of things that are happening in other sectors but it's clear the accounting profession is perhaps lagging they haven't got as much of the early adoption as they could do maybe they feel they don't have to change or they don't want to change but it is a manifesto to change and what would be your hope as this book comes out over the next few weeks and hits the profession in 2023 and beyond right
1: wow well you know uh, paul dunn who it start. You know, we've divided the book up between what we call kind of tongue in cheek, the, the keynote and the workshop, because every time I worked with Paul, he would come out and do the keynote. He'd be the inspirational, big idea, you know, incredible, passionate message. And then I would come in and do all the boring, you know, spreadsheet crap. And so he does the first part of the book, which is the keynote. And it's incredibly inspiring. He's talking about legacy Living your legacy, you know, in in, the, in a way that only Paul Dunn can do. Uh, it's just, he is, he's just absolutely brilliant. And then I come in with all the, you know, KPIs and the income statement and talk about marketing and positioning and strategy. But I'm hoping it has the same impact that Firm of the Future did. When Firm of the Future hit, it was controversial. Even if you go back and read the foreword written by my dear, dear friend, Rick Payne, who I adore and love, um, he said, you may not agree with everything in this book. I think that was the opening sentence in his foreword. He still debates me about it, Um, but it it changed the conversation. And I'm hoping that Time's Up does the same thing. It changes the conversation. It asks the right questions and it poses a different vocabulary. Because I really do believe if you want to change a conversation, you need to change the linguistics all changes linguistic. It starts with linguistics. I'm not saying that words are everything, but the words we use are really powerful. When Walt Disney started Disneyland, he didn't call them customers. He called them guests. He didn't call them staff. He called them cast members, his employees. Um, This made a huge difference. And those words are used to this day in Disney parks around the world, in all different cultures. And it makes a difference. And I'm hoping this book contributes to that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's bold, it's courageous, it's declarative. We commend the work that you and Paul Dunn have put into this, to the accounting profession and hope that is a call to arms, if you like, in their fight for relevance in this crazy world that we live in. Ron Baker, thanks so much again for your time today.
1: Thank you, Rob. Enjoyed it.
0: Broadcast Network presents Influencers in Accounting. Your access to world class accounting leaders, global influencers, and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world class. Thank you for listening to this new talent in accounting podcast this is a relatively new show but already has over a thousand listeners so we appreciate you tuning in and sharing the show with your connections if you have a potentially good guest you'd like to see on the show with some great insights on talent reach out to me on linkedin with a message and we'll follow them up and as we build this show up we're looking for a couple of sponsors for whom talent and the accounting finance space is important. Loads of great opportunities to get your brand out there and show your key messages and even get some of your own guests on the show. Again, drop me a message on LinkedIn to tee up that conversation. And for great podcast content elsewhere, make sure you subscribe to our main show. Accounting Influencers goes out every Monday and join the 40,000 listeners in 150 countries for brilliant interviews with the top leaders, experts, and influencers in the accounting and fintech world. Finally, why don't you join us and our community with some conversations at our next virtual speed networking session? These are now taking place every two months for accounting, finance, and tech professionals. 75 minutes of speed dating, great discussions, raising your personal profile, making new connections. Go to accountinginfluencers.com to register your free place for our next event. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.